In this episode of 92Y Talks, writer and media professor Douglas Rushkoff deconstructs the digital economy in his new book, Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus. The talk was recorded on March 30th, 2016, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. It's hard to see you all, but, but I can feel the love. I can feel the burn. It's weird. I, I just spent a, uh, oh, I guess it felt like a month, but I spent a week in uh, San Francisco. And in my early writing days, I used to, uh, gosh, I would go to San Francisco to sort of find out what's happening next and get this sort of spiritual, deeply humanistic recharge and then come to New York and argue why all these great things are going to happen and how the human potential is going to, you know, and I would be arguing against publishers who would just laugh me out of the room. I remember my first book on San Francisco internet culture. It got canceled in 1992 because the publisher thought the internet would be over by 1993 when it would come out. And they saw it, you know, those crazy San Francisco people and their peace and love stuff. And I went out there, I was out there for a week, and there was really not a vestige of that sensibility. If anything, it felt like me, this New Yorker, was going to San Francisco to remind them of the humanity underneath these technologies and the possibility for peer-to-peer interaction and all that. It's strange. And now I come back to New York, and you would think, oh, here at the Y, and it's this, you know, New York thing. We're in the Bloomberg bubble and all. And it would be, uh, it's very relaxing for me. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, strange sort of, uh, a strange sort of homecoming to the, the, and you would think, right, this is Wall Street, that this would be the more severe place. And it's actually, it's actually the opposite. And I don't know quite how I'm gonna, how I'm gonna deal with that. I guess be glad, you know, I didn't move out, right? I stayed, and who knows, you wait long enough and you end up in the, uh, in the human place. I mean, what's going on there, I mean, it's, you know, it's in the title of the book. It was really uh, uh, crystallized by, by uh, my Twitter stream when I saw that people were laying in front of the buses that Google was using to transport its workers from San Francisco to the, uh, the Googleplex down in, uh, in Mountain View. Uh, you know, and they meant well. You know, Google didn't want everyone to have to, well, they wanted people to be able to work on their way to work. But they also, they didn't want there to be all that pollution from all those tens of thousands of cars driving back and forth from San Francisco to, to Mountain View every day. And in terms of getting workers, if you want young technology people to come work in your company, they don't want to live in the weird suburbs off the highway. They want to live in San Francisco where it's happening in that, in that beautiful cultural capital. But by moving there en masse like that and then going back and forth the way they do, they end up really uh, kind of enjoying the value of San Francisco without putting anything back in. You know, what happened as tech workers started moving to San Francisco is the rents went up. You know, they, they doubled and tripled. And around the Google bus stops, these are bus stops, that, they're really public bus stops that are used by Google's private buses to take the, the workers down. If you lived near there, within a certain radius of a bus stop, your rent was even 30% higher 
than elsewhere. So these people who were lying in front of the buses, they had these signs that said things like uh, gentrification and eviction technologies. And they were really trying to call our attention to the fact that local businesses and the people who had made San Francisco what San Francisco is um, were having to leave. They were being priced out of their own town. They were, the, they were at best the set dressing for Google's story of being this great Bay Area pro-human country or pro-human company. And I was retweeting and kind of behind what they were doing. And then a few weeks later, there was a protest in Oakland where people started to throw rocks at one of the Google buses. And it was hard to know exactly how to react to that because I know people on those buses. And I decided to really think about, well, what's, what's wrong with this picture? You know, I don't hate the people on the bus. I don't want people throwing rocks at them. These are kids who got out of Stanford or MIT or some other school with a computer science degree. And they worked hard to get this job at Google where, yeah, maybe they're making 100, 120,000 a year, but they're only going to do it for three, what is it, 3.4 years until they, they're, they're one of the burnout casualties of Google. You know, so they're not really to blame. So you could blame their manager who's making them work hard and bring their laundry and do all this so that they do burn out. But the manager's just listening to upper management and the CEO. So you could blame the CEO. The CEO, why are you ruining this town and these people? Why are you, you know, but he's just listening to shareholders who want Google to grow by any means necessary. And those shareholders, frankly, the shareholders are a lot of us in this room with a 401k plan that has an S&P index fund and other stocks in it that we want to go up. And if they don't go up, we're going to sell it. And then where does Google go? So I really wanted to figure out why has this seemingly successful digital economy and the skyrocketing growth of these companies, why hasn't this led to distributed prosperity for people? And in particular, Google, of all companies, Google, the company that was started by two kids in their Stanford dorm room, the revolutionary little company, remember they took down Yahoo. Yahoo was a top-down organized, big corporate understanding of the internet, and Google was just a little algorithm that would use the links that real people came up with and how we all looked at different sites. It would use that information to kind of trickle up a new, almost tag-based repository of the world's information. You know, how did these kids, the do-no-evil kids, become this giant vacuum cleaner that was just sucking value out of San Francisco, at the same time appropriating the West Coast ethos of, of human potential uh, as its brand image, but obviously not as its functional reality. So I really had to look back and, you know, it didn't start this way. You know, the, the internet, digital technology is not to blame for the way it's being used. Everybody would always ask me, oh, you used to be pro-technology, now you're anti-technology. No, I'm not pro or anti-technology. I was pro the way technology was being used and now anti the way technology is being used. I still like the tech. I mean, the, the, the devices are fine. It's not them. It's who's programming them and what are they programming them for? You know, in the early days, the internet was it was kind of moneyless. It was a public utility. You had to sign an agreement to go online saying you promised you wouldn't do any commercial activity. 
in order to use this stuff. It, I remember the first time I went on, I was like, am I really entitled to use this? I don't know, I'm doing it kind of for fun, not really for official academic research. And I was like, yeah, yeah, it's okay. And we went on and it was a peer-to-peer, a a fledgling little utopia where people made stuff and shared it. We used to just share it on little five and a quarter inch drives on the back of the school bus and then on three and a half floppies and eventually until you could email things to each other. But it was always for free. And if you were going to pay, it was after the fact. It would be, you know, shareware. Say, oh, if you really like this, could you send a dollar or three dollars to the developer? And somehow we got by that way. And it's like no one got rich. In some ways that's what made the internet look so sexy is that people were just doing it for the fun of it. Three developers in a garage would come up with a game or an idea and they would eat pizza and somehow have enough money for it to happen. But then some of these companies just started to grow really fast and there was an excitement about it that that alerted some people to the notion that maybe these technologies could do more than just entertain a whole lot of geeks. And that maybe the future of these technologies is something bigger and to their mind better than all of us just having more time to sit at home and work in our underwear trading goods somehow Etsy style in a very easy slacker uh, utopia. And that was really, it was around 1987 when the biotech boom and bust happened and the NASDAQ stock exchange looked like it was uh, unsalvageable. And Wired Magazine came along in around 1992 and said, the internet, the internet will be the salvation of the NASDAQ stock exchange and the whole marketplace. They published a cover that said the long boom. And what they had decided was that the internet was going to be so profitable that it was going to allow markets to expand in ways they couldn't before, that now there was an answer to the stock market problem. Because if you look back historically, really, since around Eisenhower's time, US government and business were really worried about where is there new room for growth in the American economy? You know, the nations that we had taken over and colonized, they were kind of pushing back. We couldn't just go to Africa and put a factory and take over some place. We couldn't go to South America and enslave people and extract their minerals out of the ground. Everyone was pushing back. There was no more surface area on the planet for corporate expansion. And Eisenhower's advisors said, no, there might not be any more room on the earth, but technology can somehow maybe create more surface area. It can somehow create new folds, new nooks and crannies for expansion. Of course, it turned out that new surface area was just human attention. It was, it was our, uh, our waking consciousness that was, that was colonized. But that's, that's really the last book, which is about how we turned this beautifully asynchronous time-saving technology into an always-on technology that, that buzzes us or interrupts us every time someone has a, a tweet or a Facebook update or an SMS message. So we live in this state of perpetual emergency interruption that only 911 operators or air traffic controllers used to have to contend with. You know, that's the, that's the uh, uh, digital convenient uh, environment that, that business created for us. But Wired and the, the Wired ethos ended up really taking over the, the internet and what we think of as the internet. 
Now, when the internet moved from the culture and society pages of the newspaper to the business pages of the newspaper. I remember the, the day that Netscape went public, that's the, the original sort of nonprofit browser. They became a public company. That was the same day that Jerry Garcia died. And I always took it as a symbol that that 1960s value set was now being left behind as the net would become something else. So these companies, these digital companies, then became valued less for their ability to do anything, to generate, even to generate revenue or to create value or to let people exchange and do things and grow any real economic activity, and much more for their ability to serve as ticker symbols that would grow, that would grow more capital so that the marketplace could keep growing the way it had for so long before then. And that's how we get in a situation where a company like Twitter, and that's an app I like. You know, Twitter, it's 140 characters, and you can send it to anybody who's on your list. A company like Twitter can make $500 million a quarter. That's their quarterly revenue, $2 billion a year. And it's abject failure by Wall Street because it plateaued at that amount. Oh, it only makes $500 million a quarter. It can't just make that because that's not its job. Its job is to grow. And that's weird, right? That undermines the whole premise, really, as I see it, of the digital economy, of the possibilities for something other than industrialism and growth. So what happens is a young developer comes up with an idea. Let's say it's Twitter, 140 characters, or to trade something in a new way, or PayPal, a new, a new way for people to, uh, to exchange money. And then what do they do? And I don't really blame them for this, because these are kids who, I mean, in the 80s and 90s, if you went into computing, if you went into programming, your parents thought you were a failure. It was as if, you, oh, you're just going to be some Dungeons and Dragons little geeky fantasy role-playing computer game geek. My poor child, you could have been a doctor. You could have been a lawyer. You, know, you could have gone into business. And people who had these little ideas, all of a sudden, big business people were willing to come and write a check. I mean, how do you think it feels to be a kid eating pizza in a garage and all of a sudden AT&T or Sequoia Capital or some real adult comes along and says, your idea is good. It's so good. I'm going to give you $500,000 to develop it and we're going to value your company at $20 million. How does that sound? Wow. Gee, mom, my company's worth $20 million. And what the kids didn't realize, what really none of us realized at the time, was that by taking that venture capital money, what we were actually doing was selling our companies to someone else. And the people we were selling our companies to, they didn't care about sending 140 character messages or helping people socialize in new ways or enabling peer-to-peer -peer transaction and economic development. Even the people at Uber, they don't care if we get rides or not. Now, what they do care about is growth at all costs. So what they do is something called pivoting. Now, pivoting, what we think of as pivoting is that, oh, you're going to take your company and move it into something that's better to keep that company alive. No. What pivoting means is no longer doing the thing that you were doing, no longer doing this enabling technology, and instead moving towards a scorched earth quest for monopoly. So think of Amazon. 
Amazon and books. Did you ever feel, I mean, maybe the Kindle's kind of nice, but feel that Jeff Bezos and Amazon were thinking, how are we going to help writers and publishers and readers really connect in new and meaningful ways? How are we going to help authors create and retain the value of their work? How are we going to help publishers build? How are we going to help this, the publishing industry reach new people and reach new heights and sustain itself in new ways? No, that's not what they were thinking. They were thinking, how can we establish a complete and utter total monopoly in book publishing so that we can leverage it into another vertical? so that we can move over into another industry. I mean, why would a guy as smart as Bezos, why pick book publishing? I'm in book publishing, I know book publishing. Book publishing is low-hanging fruit. This is a business, uh, an industry that's barely hanging on. Book publishing is not a growth industry. If anything, it's a shrink industry. But it's certainly as many people read as are gonna read, unless you're gonna make more people, really. The best book publishing could grow is at the growth rate of literacy. And with TV and everything else, it's not going to. It's not, it's low-hanging fruit. It's an industry that's barely getting by, but pick that. Because these guys are already wobbling, teetering on the edge. We can establish a monopoly in that damn fast. And they did. So they adopt a kind of a scorched earth policy towards the market on which they would normally be depending. So Uber doesn't look at the ride sharing industry, if we want to call it that, the taxi industry and say, oh, this is a really powerful uh, industry and we're going to help it. We're going we're to make an industry so that drivers can keep themselves alive better and, and, and we're going to create a real working, uh, an ecology through, through which we, we create sustainable value and these people are gonna live and be great. No, they're just thinking, what can we do to establish a total monopoly, even if we have to use our capital at a loss to undercut prices to put everyone else out of business so that we can own the cab industry and then use that to move over into robotic cars or drones or logistics or something else. So what happens is we end up with these companies that are really little better than software designed to extract value from people and places and convert it into share price. So they take working assets, working money, and pull it out of circulation and stick it into share price where it just sits there frozen. Right, that's, I guess that's called capitalism, but this is capitalism on steroids. There used to be three main factors of production that any economist would tell you about. Land, labor, and capital. In the digital economy, the only one of those that speaks is capital. And it's because the venture capitalists are the only ones in charge of the company. Not the places, like those poor San Franciscans in Google land, and not the people, like the poor drivers of Google, or the Amazon Turks, the people who work for five cents an hour doing things that are too boring for computers to do. The problem is when they look at their markets as uh, uh, really just resources to extract, they don't see their markets as uh, uh, communities to maintain. They don't care. If you have a long-term business, of course you want your marketplace to stay alive so that your business stays alive. You need a functioning marketplace. But if the only reason you're taking over a marketplace is in order to then leverage into another, you don't care. You can adopt a totally scorched earth 
approach to it. Just kill everything in the path towards the next, uh, the next conquest. Now, it used to take a while for that to happen, as Walmart is realizing now. If you operate a Walmart in a community or in a, pre in a former community, if you operate a Walmart for 20 or 30 years, you end up sucking so much value out of that community that the community goes bankrupt. We know how Walmart works. They undercut all the local merchants, so they all go out of business. They pay part-time wages so that people have to go on the welfare rolls in order to even work at the company. Until eventually, after 20 or 30 years of operation, as Walmart is finding out today, the communities themselves are too starved for money to even support a Walmart. And then the Walmart has to close. But when you do this digitally, what used to take 20, 30, 40 years to happen, you can do really fast. Just suck all the money out and it's gone. You just destroy your market. So you end up with something that's very much like, like old corporate capitalism, you know, it, which, which you know, we can debate uh, its, its function in an overall economy as a player in an economy, a nasty player maybe, but one of many players, to being really the only one. You know, and what we did with digital technology then is instead of deploying it to allow for a kind of a peer-to-peer -peer set of transactions between people, if you think of an early internet company that in spite of its evil kind of tried to do that would have been an eBay, where at least eBay let people trade stuff that they had. It created a market where there was none before. People went into their attics or into their basements and got stuff and said, oh, I can give this. People started to make money where there wasn't. At least the idea here was we're going to connect people and maybe take a little off the top for ourselves. No, instead, we move towards, we move towards this uh, uh, a very different uh, business model. And the fact is, this is not a new business model at all. What this really is, it's the oldest form of industrialism. And that's really what I had to go back and see is, when did this model come into place? Why do the people who are starting digital businesses accept the rules of venture capital as if it were just a condition of nature? Why does a guy, he was a friend of mine when he started Blogger, Evan Williams, you know, why does a guy this smart to start Blogger and then start Twitter to disrupt journalism and disrupt communications, disrupt all these individual industries, the first thing he does when he has a great idea for, for his company, where does he go? He goes to the biggest, baddest industry. He goes to the equivalent of daddy at Goldman Sachs and says, let's go to an IPO. As if going to the IPO or going to the acquisition is the only legitimate path for a business. And yeah, and I saw him on the cover of the Wall Street Journal with the number 4.3 billion under his face, which was the amount he earned the day that, uh, that Twitter went public and they let Twitter ring the bell on the stock exchange and all the stockbrokers, all the investors clap. If you're on the floor of the stock exchange ringing the opening bell to the applause of the stockbrokers, it's not because you've done something disruptive. It's because you've confirmed the primacy of capital, of the venture capital game, to the whole, to the whole scheme of things. You know, and once you do that, once you accept industrialism, really, which is what it is, once you accept corporate industrialism as the underlying operating system, well, then you are beholden to it. 
it's the thing that amazes me is that people who are programmers, I wrote this book called Programmer Be Programmed on the idea that if you understand programming, you can't look at the world the same way. When I learned to program and I walked out on the streets of New York and saw the grid pattern, all of a sudden I went, oh my gosh, someone made it a grid pattern. I always thought that's just city. That's just the way, you know, God made city somehow to be in a grid pattern. No, it's a program. It was designed that way. That's the, the hacker ethos. That's what happens, I thought, when you learn to program. But here are these people who've learned to program who then ignore the operating system under which all of this business activity is taking place. You know, they talk about, oh, we're going to gamify finance, we're going to gamify business. The marketplace is already gamified. It's already this stuff that we call money and how it comes from the bank and all. That's already a game. You know, and that's really what, what I needed to look at. I, in order to be able to explain to these folks, there's an operating system, and here's who made it, here's how it works, really to use the tools of the media theorist to say money is an operating system. Corporations are a form of software. If we look at them like that, then we won't see them as conditions of nature. It's not that God made money, and even though we put his name on the, on the, on the bills, God didn't make the money. You know, and God didn't make corporations. We don't even know if there's a God, but let's not go into that quite yet. So I wanted to look back, how did this happen, and why? And why has the digital economy then become so biased against human beings, against the exchange and creation between people? And I went all the way back, and I found you know, that corporations and central currency alike were both invented around the same time. And it turns out it was, it was in the late Middle Ages. We always like to call the Middle Ages the Dark Ages and how terrible they were. And they might not have been fun to live in. But there was a moment at the end of the Middle Ages when it looked like things might change. Everybody had gone off to the Crusades and they came back to Europe with new technologies and new spices. They had opened up trade routes. And they were starting to talk with each other and exchange value with one another. One of the innovations they brought back was the bazaar, an Arab word, of the bazaar, which we called the marketplace. The marketplace was a great way for people to come and now do, for the first time in hundreds of years, really, to do lateral trade with one another. It was a peer-to-peer -peer economy. And what they had at the market was something called market money. Sometimes it was grain money. We don't have to get into the specifics, but it was money that was really just good for the day. It was like poker chips that you bring out at night just to play poker. The point of the chips, the point of the receipts they had was to promote transactions between people. So if I had a chicken and you had shoes and I needed shoes but you didn't want a chicken, we had receipts and other ways to foster our transactions because barter was really Although they had complex barter too. They did barter, you know, like eight-way trades, like the Knicks with the Braves and the, you know, it was just like these crazy, they had brokers, it was a whole thing, but it was it was inefficient. But market money was great. So when people had market money and people had the bazaar and people were trading, they had these little small businesses that were really they were, showed attention to craft, the economy started to grow and people started to get wealthy. You know, no, they didn't have, you know, uh, uh, CPR and television and all the things that we do today, but they were getting happier. Right? Women got bigger in the late Middle Ages than at any time until the 1970s in England. People were working about three days a week. Things were actually improving tremendously. It was the greatest growth period for the masses that we've ever seen. But the problem with that was that as the people got wealthy, as the former peasants became the bourgeois and the merchant class, the wealthy were getting poor. 
Even if they weren't getting absolutely poor, they were getting relatively poor as everybody got wealthier. And these were families, these aristocratic families. They hadn't worked in a thousand years. They didn't, wouldn't know how to create value if it hit them in that face. Right? So what they had to do was figure out a way to undo these innovations, to undo the peer-to-peer -peer economy that was happening. So the first innovation they came up with was what they called the chartered monopoly. So now, if, if you used to make shoes and she used to uh, you know, do grain or, or, or grind grain, now the, the monarch could say, you know, you, you know, you, Brian, you are the official, her, his majesty's oat man. Now, if anybody wants to make oats or sell oats, you work for Brian, right? And you may, if someone's going to be a, uh, a shoemaker, you're in charge of the shoemaking. You are my favorite shoemaker. You're going to give me a piece of the shoe company, right? Okay, 5%, good. Anybody who's in the shoe business has to work for His Majesty's royal official shoe company. Now, there's a problem with this. Yin Mei doesn't want to hire the very best shoemakers for her company. If she hires the best shoemakers, they're going to want 20 bucks an hour to make these shoes. No, you don't want them, and they're going to complain, they're going to want more money, they're going to say you're not doing your shoes right. No, but she wants to go to the medieval equivalent of the Home Depot parking lot and find the, the your resident aliens at best, or the, the, find the people who are wandering around there, train them in 15 minutes to put one nail in one shoe, and then pass it to the next guy who puts a different nail in that shoe. Because that way, if it's only 15 minutes of investment, you can fire the person when they ask for more than a nickel an hour. So the whole point is to remove human beings, is to disconnect workers from the value they create. So now, instead of selling the value that I've created, instead of selling a shoe, I sell my time. I sell an hour, two hours, three hours. That's when the clock went up on the, uh, on the, in the middle of the town, because now we were buying and selling human time. The only time we ever did that before, the only time we ever really sold our time in that way was in slavery. Right? You don't sell your time, you sell what you've done. But that was the object of the game. And second they came up with, they said, well, the other big problem with this new uh, uh, market economy is all these local currencies that people are using. How can we just get rich by being rich? And they came up with a brilliant idea, central currency. Each monarchy in, a, in the same few hundred years outlawed all of these local currencies. They found good reasons. They said, oh, it's not the king, his picture's not on there, or it's another god. Or They came up with nice reasons for it, but really what they did was outlawed all local currencies, so now people would have to borrow money from the treasury at interest. So this is a great way. If I've got money, and I have the only official monopoly money, now if you want to transact, you've got to borrow money from me and then pay back more than you took. It's great for me, right? Just having money lets me make money. And the other thing that's really interesting is now, what does that do to the economy? As an operating system, what does the economy have to do if you have to pay back more than you've borrowed? The economy has to grow. It has to keep growing. Now, this worked fine for colonial empires that had all of these other places to go and gunships to defend them. So you could go to South America, you can go to Africa, you could grow, you could do cotton trade and sugar trade and slave trade and everything else. You can keep growing and keep removing humans from the equation because humans are pesky. Humans get in the way. If humans are trying to create value, if the natives on an island in the West Indies are trying to make rope and sell it to the corporation, what do you do? You make the manufacturing of rope illegal by anyone except the company and make them be workers for the corporation.
And that's what they kept doing and kept doing and kept doing. And it's that ethos, you know, if not, if not exactly, if it's not practiced exactly in the same legal way, it's being programmed in the same way into these platforms so that it's harder and harder for anybody to create value. Now, the first thing we did when we got digital technology is use the industrial age zero-sum ethos. You know, the first computers most of us interacted with was probably the uh, telephone receptionist. You know, so they could fire the human being who answers the phones, and now you get, you know, that menu thing. And the company that does that saves money. They don't have to pay health care. They don't have to pay a salary. They just have this little machine that's going to answer all the calls and tell people what button to push to get through their menus. But what does it do to everybody else who's calling that company? For all of us, it takes us more time. We're spending more money and more time in order to get through to that company that has that computer. So then what do we do? Well, we're going to put in those computers, too, to externalize that cost. So now everybody's actually paying more money in order to have this automated thing rather than less. But at least we've gotten more people out of the way. And so what happens is we implement mechanisms that are really good for extracting value from people and places, but are really bad at making people wealthy. We all end up poorer in the process. And this is a real problem that if you talk to them behind closed doors, corporate America will agree that this is a big problem. Right? Corporate profit over net value has been going down for 75 years. That's before digital technology or anything else. This is really since Eisenhower's time till now. Corporate profit over net value has been going down. What does that mean? It means that corporations are really good at taking money off the table. They're really good at sucking money out of the system, but then they're really bad at deploying those assets productively. So they, it's, it's a kind of uh, a, a corporate obesity where they can take the money and store it in fat, but they don't have muscle to actually make anything. So when what do they do? You know, well, some of the CEOs just weep about it, or they create fake growth in their company, because all they're supposed to do is grow. No one cares about revenue. They care about growth. So corporations, they'll sell off their productive assets in order to show growth, like what GE was doing in the 1990s, where Jack Welch, who's treated as a genius, but what he realized was that he makes maybe you know, 8% or 10% back on his money when he invests in making washing machines, but he makes 20 or 30% on his money when he lends money to people to buy those washing machines. So what does he do? Let's sell the washing machine companies and keep the money lending. You can keep our GE name on those if you pay us a little something, but we're not going to get involved in actually making something. The person who creates value is the sucker. What you want to do in this operating system is get closer and closer to the bank. And this was already going off the rails by the late 80s, early 90s. Everybody knew growth is going to have a problem. Now. We've taken it all off the table. People are getting poor. What are we going to do? So digital technology came around. And some of us, we weird, weirdo, lefty, pinko, San Francisco freaks thought, oh, great. We're not going to have to worry about the corporations. Don't have to go work for Payne Weber. We're going to be able to trade and intermingle in a lateral fashion. It's going to be wonderful. But no, but what they said is, oh, digital technology is going to be the fix. It's going to be the steroids that we can pump into this growth monster to get another couple of decades out of this thing. You know, like, like 
speed or something else that's just going to keep you awake until something, God willing, will happen to allow us to grow. Maybe we get onto other planets or something and, and, and grow. But what happens when we put traditional businesses or all businesses and all of our creation on these digital platforms that are engineered and optimized for extraction and growth? Well, everything moves really fast, but it's almost like a centrifugal force, something called power law dynamics take effect. So you create a platform where everybody in the world can write a song and put it on this platform and try to sell it. It's going to be democratic. It's going to be open. We're all going to be musicians. But what actually happens is fewer people are able to make money as musicians. We get one, you know, oh, there's somebody making money as a FaceTimer. We all recognize FaceTime. Really, the Pavlovian cues are just they're thrilling. So what happens is, is power law dynamics come into effect. So you get one Taylor Kanye West on the top and a zillion people who make nothing on the bottom. You know, the wired people said, oh, don't worry, there's going to be this long tail. So that even though your stuff's not selling a lot now, it's going to be there forever and eventually you'll make... That didn't work. That didn't work. No, there's just this long tail, meaning there's two people that make money here and no one else takes money down there because everything spin cycles out of control. And then we find out that's even happening on the corporate level. They know. Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, Sergey Brin, they know there's only going to be one winner. You know, for the economists out there, they are jockeying for a Gini, a Gini number of one, meaning one company is going to end up on the top with everything. So Google wants us to do our shopping through it. Amazon wants us to do our searching through it. Facebook wants to do our news gathering through it. They're each jockeying into each other's things because they have to grow even more than they are now. And the fact is, there's not enough money for these companies to grow. Certainly not enough in the industry they're in. They're all basically in the advertising and marketing industry. They realize that none of us have any money left, so what do they mine instead of our checkbooks? They mine our data. Oh, we can still get data from these people, but they're taking data from people that have no money. What's my data worth? And everybody's end game, everybody's exit strategy is the data play, right? That they're, they don't really make money in what they're doing, like a Facebook or two. We don't really make money through our advertising, but all this data is so valuable. It's not that valuable. Advertising and marketing research and branding, it's never accounted, and this is generous, it's never accounted for about more than 4% of GDP. 4%, it stayed that way, really, for a couple hundred years. It just doesn't, the reason why it can't get beyond that is because if, you're, if everybody is doing what they do for no money, but just to slap advertising on it. So if my talks are to advertise somebody else's something, and my books are to advertise something, and you're selling bananas to advertise milk, eventually, who's left to advertise? There has to be, 95% of the economy has to be real to support that 5% with advertising. If it gets beyond that, it doesn't really work. So finally, these companies know that only one of them can even survive in such an environment. No, but whether or not they realize it, along the way, they are extracting value from people and places. They're making it really uh, not easier, but much, much harder for people to do 
anything at all. They're, they're, instead of enforcing their platform monopolies with gunships, the way monopolies were defended in the 1300s, or with laws, now they're defending it with programming. That's the way the platforms are built. They're not building platforms where the Uber drivers can talk to each other and forge solidarity. There's no chat function. Hey, how much are you getting paid? Do you like this? These are not configured for people to actually engage with each other, and when they are, they're still taking a lion's share out of it. You know, what Airbnb does to a neighborhood is not, if you've lived in a building where some of the units on your floor have become those rentals, and even the justification that, oh, look, we're helping people make money, you know, and helping them get, well, you're not. You're giving unemployed people on the brink of bankruptcy you know, a little bit more time so they can move in with their mom and do an illegal sublet of their apartment. You know, it's not a prosperity strategy. You know, that's, uh, and I know I like, to talk about, uh, I like to talk about guaranteed minimum income sometimes as, a, as a, a viable alternative, but I was talking with the folks at Uber about it. They, the folks at Uber say, don't worry about the fact that our app is putting people out of business and bankrupting all these people who have medallions and cabs and giving them unsustainable incomes because eventually we'll just get to guaranteed minimum income. But what does that mean? It means that there's all these masses getting welfare and guaranteed minimum income and people who own the apps who still get all the money. That's a, it's, it's an extreme version of, uh, of the d disparity of wealth that, uh, uh, that masquerades as some sort of benevolence. But there are, um, there are fixes. I'm, not, I'm, I'm upset and maybe a little mad um, that we've taken what I see as just a terrible detour away from the distributed prosperity that the net promised into this uh, accelerated, amplified, tragic, uh, exploitational, extractive capitalism. And I'm dis deeply disturbed by how these apps are and platforms are developed to really make all of their effects invisible. It's lovely that on Uber you don't have to tip the driver, you don't even have to talk to them. It's lovely that on a smartphone you don't see the two refrigerators worth of electricity that you're using every time you're trying to download things or, or use, you just see the little plug that you're putting in the wall. That whole rest of the world is not there. All that stuff, and, and this great word convenience. What does convenience really mean in a digital age? Convenience means La, 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 I'm not going to look. Don't tell me. Don't say it. It's all pretty colors. Swipe, swipe. It's all good. You know, but it's still going to land, land on you. It's really going to hit you like a ton of bricks eventually. All that stuff you've externalized, all that stuff you didn't look at is going to come back. You know, the object of the game for the wealthy digital person is to make enough money so they can insulate themselves from the reality of the world around them. No, and that's a losing game. It's a much better strategy to just try to make the world a place that you don't feel the need to insulate yourself from. It's actually a more efficient path to, to, to happiness, to fulfillment. So what I did, what I did in, this, in this book was first tried to show you know, how did we get here, what is this operating system that everybody is accepting at face value, and why are they implementing it, why is growth this mantra to the point where companies just want to grow in order to sell to someone else rather than stay in business. 
really help them see that, help young people in particular understand that taking money from the wrong people means selling your company and doing something else, and at least letting them know, if you want to sell your company and have a one in 10,000 chance of being a home run, great. But if you were going to be satisfied with $500 million a quarter, don't sell. Right? If you would be happy being a multimillionaire, you have a way better chance of being that by running a good, uh, a good business that helps create an economy. So, and then what I did was, and it's tricky, you know, they all want it in a tweet. I still get the emails from CEOs and young developers saying, oh, I heard about your book. Tell me, how can I make a company that functions well? Or that, see, I was like, well, just even read the book? Will you just open and read the introduction to start? No, this is, you can't, this is bigger than a tweet. Right? This is 500 years in the making. So it's going to take more than a tweet or one medium post. What, what I need them to do is to actually spend four or five whole hours, right? Actually reading a book, getting through it and seeing, oh, this is how it was put together. But more importantly, because, I mean, while I give answers, we're no longer in an industrial age. There is no one-size-fits-all answer to the problem. The beauty of a digital age is that there are hundreds, thousands of individual distributed solutions to very particular local problems. It's the one-size-fits-all mentality, the quick fix that's the problem, not the solution. So, I mean, anybody, if you're watching the video, I'm sure there's a home audience playing, this, playing along at home. Um, just read the book, just take the time. I don't care if you buy it, get it in the library. It's free, steal it, borrow from a friend. But actually take the time to see what happened. And then, you know, what I did was laid out a lot of models, a lot of things, oh, well, a bank could do this, a store could do that, a community could do this. Not that the community has to go do that and the store has to just do that and the bank has to do that, but it starts people thinking in, oh, look at these other kinds of models. But the models that I'm, pr I'm promoting what I'm saying is rather than optimize your company or your organization or your town, rather than optimizing it for the extraction of capital and storage and share price, optimize it for the velocity of money. Right? Optimize it to promote more transactions between people. You know, the tweet, I guess, for that, and they would hate this tweet, the tweet would be make them rich. Make your users rich. If you're making your users rich, then you have wealthy customers. You know, it's as simple as, you know, Google almost got it when on YouTube they decided to cut in their users on the, uh, on the ad revenue that their videos generate. You know, you get a little bit of that, not nearly enough. But at least the idea there, instead of like Facebook, which charges you money to reach all your followers with a video, you know, that's not a winning strategy. It's not a winning long-term strategy. At least Google was thinking, how can our users actually create some value, how can, they be made, how can they be made rich? I give a lot of uh, uh, experiments. It's easy, if you're working in a big company, it's not, you know, we all have this, this oh, if it's not this, then it's that. We have one extreme or another. Oh, if we're not gonna make money, now you're saying we gotta be communist. No, it's like, there's, there's a way to balance these things out, and particularly if you're in a big company, you can't just go to the CEO and say, we must become a more distributed business. We have to make them rich, um, because they've got shareholders and all these other people to listen to. But what you can do is argue for little trials. What if we do a little, let's just call it a public relations trial. It's something good, we'll get, we'll get good press on this. So what if a bank, 
uh, take a local bank, but normally a pizzeria comes to the bank for a $100,000 loan. And the bank decides if it's a good risk and then gives the $100,000 at some amount of interest. The guy expands his pizzeria, does whatever, he, whatever it is he wants to do with that money, and then pays it back with interest. And the bank, well, the bank's basically been an extractor of value from the town, but giving a little temporary capital, but they're the only ones that have it. Now, what if the bank instead said, well, look, you want $100,000, we'll give you $50,000 of that loan, contingent on your ability to crowdsource $50,000 from your community. And we're going to give you this little app on your phone that you can use to ask your patrons to give you $100 toward the expansion of your restaurant, at which point you will give them $120 worth of pizza once you open the expansion. So your users, your customers now, are making 20% back on their money within a year, which is better than anybody's going to do at, at Smith Barney. And the bank is no longer seen as just the pure extractor of value from the community, but as an enabler of local transaction. And now people who have invested in the pizzeria, they not only get their 20% back, but they've made their street better. They've increased their property value. They've increased the tax base. They've made their public schools better. And they have a friend in the pizzeria. And the pizzeria has people who are going to sell his pizza like no one ever before. You know, these are really easy things. Walmart could make one shelf of its, of its extractive empire. One shelf could be dedicated to locally produced goods. That's easy. A supermarket chain can say on Sundays, we'll let there be a farmer's market in the parking lot. Charge the farmers if you really want their money. But let them do something and then take the food that wasn't sold at the end of the day and then sell that on your shelves at a markup. I mean, these are not rocket science, but what they are is simple initiatives to think about how can we create economic activity rather than make all of our money by extracting it. I mean, there's a lot of policy answers. A lot of them. I mean, poor Bernie. I love Bernie Sanders, but I saw this piece he wrote for the New York Times about the Federal Reserve. And he was saying, oh, the Federal Reserve, it's no longer serving its, its regulatory agency function. They're no longer the watchdogs. Did you know that the Federal Reserve is now populated entirely by bankers? The Federal Reserve was always in, populated entirely by bankers. It's, it's a bank. You know, it is performing its function. You know, this is not, we're not looking at capitalism having been corrupted by some bad actors. We are looking at capitalism performing exactly as it was programmed to. Only now that we're doing it on digital cycles, it's all become more visible. It's become more transparent. It's like Koyaanisqatsi when they, you know, show everything moving really fast. You can see, oh, I see, it's just sucking value out. That's what they do. Another great tactic is uh, bounded investing. It's like the pizzeria example, but you invest in things that are part of your community rather than doing, most of us invest in companies that are doing nasty things in places far away and we try not to think about it. You know, that Filipino smelting company that's sticking kids into mines to get out molybdenum or whatever. You know, oh well, it's in the S&P index fund, it's all shrouded, E-Trade, whatever, I can't see it. La -la -la. Um, what if you make like the steel workers? The steel workers had a big retirement fund and they weren't making good money in the stock market. And what they decided to do was double dip. They took their retirement fund and they invested it in projects that hire steel workers. Duh. Isn't that a good one? So they're investing in something, they got the investment, but now they're also getting that money right back as salary. And then they thought, well, why don't we invest in projects that hire steel workers and then that steel workers actually live in them, a retirement home for steel, for steel workers' parents. You know, it's not 
rocket science, but it's thinking that instead of taking a dollar off the table and saying it's mine, I earned it, it's earning that same dollar five or 10 times. It's better to earn the same dollar 10 times than to earn $10 once. Because if you earn the $10 once, they're gone. You can't recoup them, you can't make them again. Now, I'm also uh, promoting family businesses. Family businesses do better than shareholder-owned businesses historically on every metric except that during bubbles, shareholder-earned businesses grow faster. But that's not a metric that you want. It's actually during a bubble is when you want to stay calm. Family businesses do better because the people running them aren't thinking, how am I going to make enough money with this business to hand my kid an inheritance? They're thinking, how am I going to keep this business alive long enough so that by the time my grandchild wants to run it, it's a thriving business that they're not embarrassed of, that the people in my town don't hate me for screwing everything over. Now, um, I write about complementary currencies, which are a really easy thing. New corporate structures in a digital age, shouldn't we be able to look at the corporate charter and say this needs to be rewritten? Can't we do benefit corporations and multi-purpose corporations, nonprofit corporations? These are easy. You know, it's really just a matter of getting down and closer to value creation. You know, the digital age, when I first heard digital, this is what I thought of as the digits. The digital age is the human fingers. The, promise of a digital age is for people to get back into, into real production, into real creation, for people to have their hands back on to terrible metaphor. I was going to say the steering wheel, the dashboard, the, the, the greeny engines of creation. But when you talk to the leading thinkers of digital companies, when you go to the heart of Google and who's there, it's Ray Kurzweil. You know, Ray Kurzweil is the guy, he's pushing Google toward the singularity. These are people who believe that, well, human beings, it's an industrial age thought, human beings are only important insofar as they're going to keep the computers on once the computers can think. And when I argue, no, it's about the people, the people, they say, oh, you only say that, Rushkoff, because you're a human. <laughs> like it's some hubris to care about humans and, and to put humans first. But no, I, I believe that Humans, you know, humans have the home field advantage on planet Earth. We still do. You know, and if we accept this as terra firma, this as the landscape where the economy actually takes place, rather than that internet place, which is the home of abstract corporations, if we think of this as the place that we want to protect and these as the entities we want to protect, everything kind of, kind of flips flips around on its head. You know, all I'm asking people to do is take the time to see the operating system. You know, take the time, whether it's you're doing liberal arts and reading or thinking or just being with other people, so that you can see this bizarre growth-based cultural narrative for what it is, a human invention that has long outlived its usefulness. And that we are, we are programmers, whether we're digital programmers or cultural programmers. We are programmers, and we do have the capability of rebooting this economy for digital prosperity before there's really no economy left at all. Okay, thanks a lot. We should, we should talk amongst ourselves. Um, there's time. We're, we've got microphones. We have intelligent people. I'll put this up for advertising. <laughs> we have books out there. You can buy one. Steal one, you know, do whatever. No, don't steal it. It's a real bookseller here. But I can sit here. Oh, good, I can see you now. My New Yorkers. It was really crazy out there. Yeah. yeah uh, Wait, take the, 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 there's a man. Run, run. 
what's your take on all these on the on-demand economy, where uh, you know companies create platforms and uh, try to eliminate or reduce the number of people involved in transactions? Uh, we're seeing more of these companies now. So where is all that going, and what's your take on that? Well. Automation could be a fun thing. You know, Norbert Wiener talked about this back in the 40s. It was the very, very beginnings when they started talking about living in a post-industrial age, that what would we do if we had even robots who could till the fields? You know, is, that, is that okay with us for robots to till the fields? Yeah, it's okay as long as we still get the food. You know, it's okay for, to use a, a, a meter to go through the, the toll booth, you know, as long as the toll collector isn't going to live in, in, in squalor. So it's really where we have to get to the point is realizing that human beings, really since the beginning of the industrial age, human beings have been measured in terms of their utility value. You know, and as long as we see human beings' main purpose is their utility value, we're screwed. Because machines do have better utility value than us. Eventually, they'll be able to do pretty much every job, you know, other than maybe you know teaching and healthcare and entertaining and true high-touch interactive things. They're going to be able to do stuff. So what do we do? And we're already at that place. What do we do if we get to the place where there's just not enough jobs to go around? Well, if we understand jobs the way we should, which is that you have jobs in order to do the work that people need. Well, then less jobs is fine. We work two days a week, work one day a week, work less, you know, and we all get to work as, as much as we're allowed. But right now we're in this strange abundance paradox where in California we are tearing down houses every day. Bank of America is tearing down houses that are in foreclosure. We can't just let people live in them. You know why? Because they don't have jobs. So we need this guy to get a job making some useless thing that people are going to buy and stick in a storage unit or put in the landfill in order to justify letting them have what's already in abundance. You know, and that's an ass backwardsness that just doesn't, that just doesn't work anymore. So what we have to do is, is scale down. We have to look at four-day work week and then three-day work week. Every experiment we do in four-day and three-day work weeks and reduced hours, they work. No, they don't, it, it, it doesn't lead to this weird laziness and horror show that we thought. It's, it's as simple as if the drivers of Uber, if they owned the company rather than being just the freelance nothings, if this was what's called a platform cooperative where the drivers own the company, then, all right, these guys are doing research for a company that is about to replace them with automatic cars. But at least their investment of research and development, they're going to recoup it on the other end because it's the company they own. It's the thing that they built. But if there's no worker participation, if workers are a resource, I even like the human resources. That's such a nasty, nasty title for an expression. It's as if it's supposed to sound good. It's, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't raise resources to the level of humanity. It re reduces humanity to the level of a resource. If we're thinking about people that way, then, um, then we're screwed. But yeah, we've got to go certainly to guaranteed minimum income, where we realize we have enough stuff for everybody to be fed, everybody to have a home, and everybody to have health care. That's easy. That's not, that's not even economically challenging. 
You know, and then look, well, what do people want to do? What do you want to compete for? Well, you want to compete so you can have an iPhone, so you can have a bigger house, so you can be in a cool neighborhood, you know, so you can compete for the luxuries, the cool and the weird stuff. But in order to get there, we've got to sort of dial down a little bit. We have to, uh, we have, to have a fundamental shift in what it is we think the humans are for. Right? Humans are not here to serve the market. The market is here to serve the humans. So if we've gotten so far in this, in this, uh, in this weird end game of extractive corporate capitalism that we can only understand humans in terms of what are they offering, what are they offering, um, then we've got to flip it and see, oh no, we're here. Let's, let's be heirs to the thing that we made rather than the, the victims of the thing that's supposed to replace us. You know, it's it, simple, simple ways to do it. What, what, what the first thing I would do if I were president is um, stop punishing, taxation-wise, stop punishing people who create value. Right now, if you make, if you have capital gains, if you make money with money by doing nothing, which is how 74% of the money by the top 1% is made, if you make money by doing nothing, you're barely taxed at all. Whereas if you make money through either through dividends or through actual earnings and payroll, you pay a huge tax. What is that? In terms of, as a programmer would look at that, what are we doing? We're optimizing the economy for passive growth of capital and against the creation and exchange of value between people. That's just dumb, you know, but, but there's a lot of vested interest. It's really tricky to, uh, it's tricky to alter that. But yeah, that's why once you start looking at it and you realize, oh, we've programmed something for of people who are dead and have long since left the building. You know, it's not really serving anybody. Even the billionaires, they have too much money. They don't know what to do with it. When they're saying, oh, I'm going to give back 90% of my money as charity, that's not a good thing. It means you took too much to begin with. <laughs> you know, especially if you're some libertarian, you really think you're going to place it in all the right places. The market would have put it in the right places if we had an actual circulatory marketplace, which we don't. Just to follow up on yeah. what you were saying earlier, though, it sounds like you don't like venture capitalists very much. So um, could, you, could you expand on that a yeah, little bit? Yeah, I don't mind them. They're just, I, I think that they are running on automatic. Venture capitalists have one plan they understand. They witnessed, they're young, most of these people. They witnessed what happened to a few companies in the early 90s, this growth, boom. And they think, home run is the way to do it. I want to get a home run. I'm going to invest in a 1,000 companies as long as one of them gives me a home run. And I don't care if the other 999 crash and burn and destroy environments and do whatever. I'm going to get a home run. Then I'm going to send my kid to a Rudolf Steiner school and get a goat share you know, and be good. You know? and that's insane. That's insane. So they're not, um, they're not evil people. I don't believe in evil. They're just um, ignorant. And some of them are realizing the error of their ways. A guy like um, um, Fred Wilson at Union Square Partners, he's reading Carlotta Perez, who talks about industrial revolutions and how they work. And he's the guy saying that someone's got to come along and disrupt Uber with a, a driver-owned uh, driver platform. He sees that these are, that th these are, uh, unsustainable end games that these companies are, are entering into. I mean, I don't know what you know, his earlier investments did. You know, maybe that was what helped him see, uh, to see what happened. But no, I'm not, uh, that's part of the point of the beginning of the book with the people hurling rocks at the Google bus. I don't blame anybody in particular. It's a whole cycle. We're all participating in it. We've got retirement plans that are depending on the venture capitalist to make to extract that money so we can have it uh, when we, uh, you know, when we retire, um, I know, we'll be a couple of people. What is it, 90% of Americans don't have enough to retire, and it's not going to work anyway. 
Um, I don't, I blame them, but I'm not, I, I don't see them as, as, as evil. I just think that they don't, it, it's really hard in a, in a world where, where operating systems spin out of control this wildly. It's a really dangerous thing if people have no real understanding of the operating systems they're using. And I've been to the investment houses. I've talked to the deputy chairman of the Federal Reserve. These people have no idea when money was invented. I mean, they understand how the knobs work now in terms of you know buybacks and bonds and, and, and leverage debt. They understand that. But they don't understand who made these rules. They accept the game as a given circumstance of nature. And what I'm arguing is the game is very young. The game's only four or 500 years old. You know, it's, it's, it, the game has only been playing this game as long as the uh, Israelites were in slavery in Egypt, right? It took them 40 years to get out, to, to wander around the desert to realize what they had done. And, uh, you know, that's why I'm asking for four hours, you know, four hours to people to sort of immerse and then go, oh, I see. Because um, it's not that hard to do things the other way. It's just you got to go think small. You got to think small. It's one little store. You know, what we're doing really is retrieving, we're not going back to the Middle Ages, but we're retrieving some of the mechanisms that were repressed forcibly back then. This is what Marshall McLuhan, great media theorist, talked about, that, that in a new renaissance, whenever there's a new medium, you retrieve certain values from history. And what we're going to retrieve is peer-to-peer, -peer, is peer-to-peer -peer currency. We could retrieve women, wouldn't that be interesting? Um, because they've been repressed for it's about four or 500 years of, of the, the latest, uh, uh, the latest wave, um, you know, we can start to re retrieve those mechanisms. The commons is another one that got, you know, that got corporatized. Uh, so there's, there's a bunch of mechanisms, and we see it in culture. You see it, and, you know, and we joke about it in craft beer and heirloom yams and all these things. We go, oh, well, people could never really make a living doing that. But actually, you know, you kind of could. Doing things at a small scale in many ways is more efficient. Industrialism only looks more efficient because the costs are externalized. So you don't, the, the company doesn't pay for the roads in order to ship their stuff across the country. All this stuff we pay for, but it actually costs more money. It's more expensive. Walmart, the prices are lower, but the cost is actually higher you know, when you look at the actual cost of society. So, um, you know, no, the, the, the little things, and then you look at what do really wealthy people do when they retire? They make craft beers and grow little orchids. They do all those things that we're saying, oh, no one really wants to do that work. Of course we want to do that work. That's fun. It's more fun than sitting in a cubicle doing, you know, mortgage scenarios or something for a company. Unless you like it, no harm, no? You a person there, can we get her the mic? And then just pick the next, she's in the third to back row, third to the aisle, and the mic's coming to her left. And who wants to go next after her? Him, yeah. So a question and a comment. Um, so, um, Do the comment first so I remember the question. Okay, so the comment is the operating system that you're most upset about is, is money, I think. Um, you know. It, when you keep talking about this operating system. And the question is, so what are the signs of optimism? To me, it's, it's the maker movement. It's the fact that manufacturing is here in Brooklyn now and not in China. It's that crowdfunding and showing your belief in somebody's idea is possible. It's the fact that you can make money renting your apartment for a night. Mm -hmm. um, 
to the uh, detriment of every neighbor that you ever had. So, but you're seeing, uh, to me, you're seeing some really optimistic signs, mm -hmm. and a lot of what you said seemed a little dark. So, um, so the question is, 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 money, is money really, is that your operating system that's the worst, and should it be barter, or should it be digital currency? Is that an answer? Well, local currencies and complementary currencies to assist us in local transaction would certainly help. I mean, when the only money we're allowed to use is centrally bank-issued interest-bearing currency that Walmart and Uber get cheaper than you and I, it's tricky. So when you see something like LendingTree, which was a peer-to-peer, -peer, I'm going to lend to you thing, when Goldman and, and B of A come with their algorithms and, and take all the good loans, and then leave the bad ones for us, it's really tricky. And when those, and it's interesting, when those companies, it's called FinTech, financial tech, when those companies stop growing at the rate that they want them to grow, now the Wall Street Journal's calling financial technology a failure. And it's not, the whole thing is, if you're doing a sustainable business, if you actually get it spinning and going in that great gyroscopic sort of equilibrium, you're gonna stop growing. You're gonna reach a steady state health, like a coral reef, like a forest, like a human body, you get full grown. You know, so yeah, currency is a big one because if you are attempting to grow at the rate of your debt structure rather than the rate of your market, then you're gonna end up trying to suck value out rather than, rather than not. But no, I'm not, currently I'm not optimistic, but I am hopeful. I mean, the first half of this book is where we went wrong. The second half of this book is all the different things we can do to try to go right from you know, all the sorts of things I was talking about. How do you initiate peer-to-peer -peer transactions? How do you create and circulate value? How do you move your company from growth-based to a dividend-based company? How would you communicate that to your shareholders? Um, uh, I, I talk about you know, distributism, which was this idea from the popes that uh, then Belloc and Chesterton and eventually Marshall McLuhan talked about, which was this idea that, that workers should own the means of, their, of production. If you own the tools, the individual tools or you own a share of the platform, then it changes the whole equation. Or a notion called subsidiarism, which is that a company shouldn't grow bigger than it needs to to accomplish its purpose. So once you're doing the thing, if you've grown and you're successful, let someone else start the other one over there. You don't need to expand there just to grow. Because what you realize is if you grow your company too big, then you don't get to do the thing you do anymore. Then you become a manager of people who do the thing that you used to love to do. And you don't want to get away from that. The only reason we have to scale, again, is because of this underlying uh, uh, VC competitive atmosphere. You talk to almost any uh, uh, company that's outsourcing its labor to China, and they say, well, I have to do it because he's doing it. you know, And then my prices aren't going to be low. And uh, that's where it gets. Uh, that's where it gets tricky, you know, but, but you know, what, what I need to do is to make the taking money from the venture capitalist and becoming a scorched earth monopoly acquirer, um, make that the dark scenario. So people understand that Google isn't even Google anymore. Google became Alphabet. Google became too big to be Google. They now are called Alphabet and they are a holding company. That means Google's business is no longer making technology. Google's business is buying and selling other technology companies. Same thing that happens to big pharmaceutical companies. They don't make drugs anymore. They look for companies that have interesting innovations and then they acquire them. So the companies themselves are money again. You know, so that's sort of what 
I'm, I'm hoping people are able to work against, but part of it is changing our sights. It's changing what we are satisfied with. It's starting to feel more safe in the world in which we live, feeling connected enough to your community that you're okay having a business that's bound to those people and realizing that that's a safer long-term strategy than this uh, really strange one, which could go, really, it could go, and it would be kind of for the good in the long term, it could go toppling at any minute. You know, the, the minute they realize that there's only 4% of GDP that can go into marketing and advertising is the minute a zillion uh, uh, big data strategy companies uh, go belly up. Because you know, they're all running on fumes. They're all running on uh, uh, their war chests rather than their revenue. Yeah. Thanks. Hi. Hey. Um, so I'm glad you brought up the homeostasis idea of an organism or a coral reef. Uh, so my question is related to the extent to which you think that there <clears throat> could be a root of this operating system in our biology. And if you think about a population of organisms, which individually might have lots of good homeostasis mechanisms, but as a group, you know, if you, you were in a flock of birds and we were all eating all of the available food supply and you said, you know, guys, we can't keep doing this. We're going to run out of berries. I don't think the birds would slow down. I think they would all say, yeah, buddy, I'm just going to go on eating my berries. So to what extent is it ingrained and to what extent is there a, a uh, balancing mechanism? Well, I think part of what distinguishes humans from other species, and other species reach homeostasis because their, their food supply becomes limited or their predators grow or you know they, they find, I mean, these are the biomes my daughter's learning about in school. They reach... A, uh, a kind of an equilibrium, and then they adjust, and they're really, I mean, talk about resilience with our little dot-coms. Biomes are super resilient in terms of weather changes and all sorts of things. You watch how they adjust. But what distinguishes humans was sharing. The reason we were able to survive was because we are actually social creatures. Humans don't, don't live alone in, in uh, competition. We live in groups for collaboration. I mean, it doesn't, it's, yeah, it takes a village, but it's sort of, uh, it's, it's deeper than that. I mean, you look at the work of like Glenn Isaacs and, and a lot of the anthropologists who look at the non-competitive nature of human evolution. I mean, yeah, we, we competed against other tribes and stuff and there's nastiness and violence and all, but um, I could argue that a command in the, in the, the human, uh, uh, the natural the core of the human behavior is, uh, is one of cooperation. And then you could say, well, let's say it's even not, well, we're gonna have to learn it. You know, even if it's not, we've gotta figure out that cooperation. But when I look at civilization, when I look at people stopping at red lights in New York, there's a tremendous amount of cooperation that people are willing to, uh, to do. You know, and the, the idea, even the, the idea that business is some, uh, uh, you know, competitive winner-takes-all phenomenon, even that is pretty new. You know, you, you, the winner takes all thing is only what happens on the net when it's like you're on ice and everything either slips to this extreme or all the way to that extreme. Um, and it doesn't, it, it doesn't have to be that way. And at least if we are in a position to, uh, to write the rules of our economy, which I still think we are, you know, uh, if, we're an ability to, if we have the ability to write those rules, we could write rules that are optimized to encourage collaboration, cooperation, and uh, exchange rather than, uh, you know, winner takes all, you know, leaderboards, you know, the way we see on the internet now. You know, you don't want to be number one. You really don't. And that's a, uh, maybe Donald does, but, uh, 
when you look at that, though, there's a, there's a psychopathology to that. That's not, um, I mean, it's interesting. But it's interesting, like, you know, there's a car crash quality of this to this election where we look at it. I mean, I just, it's a really valuable model to see, though, as long as it doesn't win. It's an interesting model to see played out like this, you know, like Charlie Sheen with money or something. It's, uh, <laughs> it's weird, but that's very, that's letting the net do its thing. That's letting the net really, um, uh, and the, the, the social mores of uh, trolling and Twitter feed, I mean, letting them, you know, rule you rather than realizing, oh, wow, if I'm gonna let these technologies, which are programmed by people who are just trying to make money in a very particular way, if I'm gonna let those technologies inhabit uh, who I am, no, I'm not going to behave uh, to my better nature. But no, I do believe, I think people are, um, deep down people are good when they can be. Yeah. Can you point out any recognizable entities on a reasonable scale that have been successful using your model? And I don't mean this as a criticism, but rather as a guide. Where has where this really worked? in a way that we could see that it's, that it's meaningful. Well, there's hundreds of pizzerias in New York that are single owner, you know, that are, that are nice and small and work. There are bookstores sprouting up, um, like Greenlight, and you know, in the, in, now that Barnes & Noble it, it finally crashed under the pressure of Amazon, they're, you know, the book industry is kind of bifurcated into you know, Amazon for the industry and then um, good, small, local ones. There's so, there's so many. I mean, the ones that are going to be household recognizable names are going to tend to be ones that are operating at a pretty, a pretty large scale to begin with. Um, every, every thriving community-supported agriculture group is doing something uh, exciting. Uh, there's, there's people making shoes. There's the, the industries in Brooklyn. There's a window factory that was bought back by its employees. There's a company called Juno, which just is starting now in New York, in Manhattan. It's a uh, Uber competitor that's 50% owned by its drivers. I'm interested to see what that one does. Um, there are, you know, and there, I, I write about tons of them in the book. There's just lots and lots of companies. Uh, on the big scale, there's companies like Publix is a supermarket chain down south that's worker-owned. Out west, there's Winco. It's a competitor to Walmart that's worker-owned. They have cheaper prices, better service, pay their workers more, and their workers have shares. They own the company. And the, the Wall Street is asking, how can they be paying their workers more and charging less for the products? How could that be? And what they don't realize is because they don't have to pay up 90% of their revenue to the shareholders who are doing nothing. They've removed this tremendous overhead of investors and they get to circulate money through their communities. Um, so there's lots, there's lots and lots of them. You know, it's really, it, walk into, you know, it's fun. Walk into businesses, walk into coffee shops and ask, who owns this? Who owns this? And see, so, oh, she does, you know, is a way better answer than, you know, well, I don't even know, or some corporate, something, you know. And if you make your choices to actually give your money to people that own the businesses who live where you live, then you see that money again, you know, particularly if you have a job that's connected to that community. You know, no, you can't, and this is, I'm not saying that everything and everything and everything does that. You can still have your iPhones, you can still have your cars. There's stuff that you're not gonna, you're not gonna buy an iPhone from a cottage industry. You're not. 
You know, but if, if instead of buying 1% of what we get from local companies, if we bought 80% of what we need to sustain ourselves with local merchants and then that other 20% of industrial stuff from the companies that make that well, it would make us a lot more conscious of when do that big supply chain thing. It's going to make us more conscious when we buy that iPhone of the little kids in Africa that are going into a cave and getting shot at to get the rare earth metals to make thing work. You know, it will start bringing stuff into consciousness and then hopefully even you know, there's a company called Fairphone which is looking at how can we make a smartphone more environmentally and labor more responsible in those areas. And they, they're modular, so rather than having to buy a whole new phone, you could put in a new chip. They're looking at the whole supply side and trying to make them as, as bloodless as possible. But then you gotta, but even they said, well, there's still a little blood. There's still a little blood. And if you've just thought about it that way, there's still a little blood between your iPhone 5 and your iPhone 6, you know, the most, the most labor-friendly and environmentally friendly smartphone you can have is the one that you have. You know? When I look around this neighborhood where we are, I see more mom and pops places going out of business because they can't pay the rents and the big chains can and they can sustain losses. So if I just walk around right here where we are, I would see I see more businesses yep. that I've known over the years going out than coming in. Yeah, and that's because and the real estate values in the city and in most of the world, real estate values are not driven by the actual need for spaces to live. Real estate is an investment. So if real people who need to live in real places are competing against investors who need apartments as growth opportunities, we're screwed. Again, this is that operating, it's that uh, there's a building here, that giant building up here, nobody lives in there. That's like Goldman owns this one and the Chinese own that one. This is just space. This is just, it's, it's as if the, the real world, when, when things become too expensive for people, it's usually not because their production got too expensive. It's because there's just too many middlemen trying to buy futures and coffee and chocolate and all these other things. There's, when 74% when of the money that the top 1% is earning is basically extracting value between our transactions, that's why stuff's got so expensive. That's why we can't afford to live here. That's why the mom and pop people are going out of business. That's why they're lying down in front of the Google bus. You know, because they, that's the symbol of the alien, sort of like to serve man. You know, they come in the bus and come and extract the value and go and, and bring it away. And that's the way it feels. And what I'm arguing is that digital technology does provide us the opportunity to restore peer-to-peer exchange, whether it's even the blockchain, which lets us do authentication in a peer-to-peer -peer fashion. These technologies really do favor the cottage industry, the family industry, the little person. With one laptop, you can scale and do whatever you want. You can build a game. You can build a business. You know, as long as you don't sell it, as long as you don't throw it away and, and make it grist for that other mill. You know, because, yes, I understand why in a world like this you'd want that shot. But it's really like those people you see that take their welfare check and then go to the bodega and buy a bunch of lottery tickets. Those are the chances you have of making it in that path. Whereas if you have a good idea that actually creates value for other people, you have such a high probability of success if you can resist the temptation to, to cut and run. We should do one, maybe one more, because it's getting late. I can feel people want to get home to their 
cottage industries. Yeah, but then I'll be here. I'll sign books and we can talk. Yeah. Yeah, he's, she's coming. Hi. So um, I basically agree with everything you said. Mm -hmm. And that's it. No. And uh, cool. I, so I, uh, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Africa in the 60s and lived in the middle of nowhere with nothing. And it was the happiest time of my life. Mm -hmm. No running water, no electricity. And uh, I've had a business for the last 35 years here. And I've, I'm in the book business, and I've sell to small businesses and big businesses. And so I've seen the things you, right. you people have asked about and you've mm -hmm. described. In fact, I'm the person that emailed you saying, I'd like to meet you. I think you're great. And I've experienced a lot of these things. I haven't expressed them as eloquently as you have and put the pieces together. But I've, you know, I've seen these things happen. Mm -hmm. My little storekeepers going out and Barnes & Noble eventually you know, you know, having problems now. But uh, I just want to make two observations. Yeah. When I was just in Cuba, I think I was, my son and I were the last Americans to go there illegally. And uh, we, made it, we, we made it back. And um, I thought it was very interesting when Obama and well, Castro were talking and Obama was lecturing him on human rights. And Castro said back, well, what's your health care system like? Everyone here has free, wonderful health care. And what's your educational system like? And everyone here has wonderful free education. And I think Cuba is the safest country in the Western Hemisphere. Um, I mean, there's some bad sides to why it is. But I spent 10 days there, and um, I found out that a doctor and a dentist and engineer, who, and everyone basically works for the government, makes the same as someone who mops the floor in the bus station. And um, the people seem pretty happy. I mean, I'm not saying they don't want more, they don't want a better life, uh, but I didn't, I didn't see a lot of anger. Uh, I didn't see a lot of, a lot of, I didn't see any homelessness. I, I didn't see any crime. And so I don't think, you know, anyone in this room wants to live like people live in Cuba, and I think they want to have a better life, and I think they need, you know, more political freedom and things like that. But it was interesting going there and seeing what they have and what we have and what they don't have and what we don't have. And the other, the other comment I'd like to make is that I talk to everybody, um, literally everybody, in the elevator, on the street, on the subway, and the taxi drivers. I interview them all, the Uber drivers. And one negative thing about technology is that everyone's looking at their little screens. And I was, you know, I, and I'm, I'm 70 years old, so I kind of grew up before all the stuff. And I try not to get, like, sucked into the whole technology thing and, and try and interact with people more than maybe a lot of other people, younger people do. So I was in my building today, and, and I, there was, I was in the elevator with this woman, and we were both kind of looking at our phones. And I, I put my phone down, and I said, what did people do before there were phones? And this nice woman looked at me and said, they talk to each other. I said, let's talk. So I had a wonderful conversation with this woman, and I found out she's a professor of African languages and linguistics at Columbia. And we became friends. And uh, so every day I try and help a few tourists. I'm in the tourist business. So every time I see someone kind of you know, looking like this and looking at a map and looking mm -hmm. confused, I kind of go up to them and kind of help you. And so I do what I can do you yeah. know, in, in my way. But 
Um, these are just two of the observations. You know, yeah, I mean, it's a, the thing I'd say is before our screens knew that their purpose was to extract value from us, they actually helped us to connect to other living people. The internet was a place you'd go and you'd find someone and then you'd get to go see them. You'd be exposed to people you'd never been exposed to before. The internet was a place that because you leveraged the time differently, you could write a brilliant paragraph and you sounded smarter than you did in real life. And now the principal purpose of these devices, it really is, I mean, the principal purpose of them is to figure, it, these are business plans. These are little business plans. Each app is another business plan that's trying to figure out how can I extract value from this person? How can I use Pavlovian responses? How can I use Freudian impulses? What can I use to capture this person? It's the whole department at Stanford called Captology, which is about how to trap people into sticky, endless loops with their technology and then reward them with a sound or an animation or something so that we can keep doing stuff. Right? The more you touch your phone, the smarter your smartphone gets about you and the dumber you get about it. You know, where when you do look up from your phone and you do make eye contact with other people, there's power in that. Eye contact is what forges solidarity. That's when the mirror neurons start going off. When you form rapport, when you see someone else's pupils getting bigger because they're agreeing with you or smaller because they're confused or they nod, they breathe with you. That's when the conspiracy begins. Literally, conspire means to breathe together. You know, when people are breathing together is when they're dangerous. It's when they form solidarity. It's when, it's when we realize we are on team human and that anybody who is not on team human um, doesn't deserve to be our friend. Okay, and with that, I thank you very much. Thanks for listening. 92i Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92iondemand.org.